Hey, it's John, back with another episode of A Galaxy Far, Far Away, the Star Wars History Podcast, where we learn all about the obscure history of the Star Wars universe with some movie trivia and fun facts thrown in for good measure. First things first, I made some modifications to the website, swgalaxypodcast.com, to make it a little bit easier to navigate and find what you're looking for. There's now a top drop-down menu where you can go to individual episode posts instead of seeing them all on one long page you have to scroll through, as well as a link to the podcast email right on the bottom of the homepage as well. I've also added a new feature. There's a link at the top of the page for audience interaction. This is a open comment section where I will post questions or topics for audience feedback that I can include in each episode. I have the first one up, which is Star Wars Day. Star Wars Day is tomorrow, the 4th of May. May the 4th be with you. And I want to hear how all of my listeners, if they are planning on celebrating Star Wars Day, what are you going to do? And I will have some responses, hopefully, in my next episode and talk about what I do for Star Wars Day, typically, as well. I'm also planning on having some guests on the next episode. Me and some friends from college will be discussing what each of our favorite Star Wars movies are and why, as another way to pay homage to Star Wars Day. As this show grows and develops, I want to encourage more interaction with my audience, and so I'll be able to use that page to accomplish that. I took a bit of a sidetrack in the previous episode to answer some questions from listeners and friends about the technologies of the Star Wars universe, particularly the lightsaber, but prior to that we just wrapped up the first Great Jedi Schism, and so now we're going to move ahead historically to the next big galactic conflict. Before we can talk about the conflict itself, however, we need to lay the groundwork for it and talk about the parties that were involved in their history. And one of the major groups that was involved in this next conflict was the Hutt Empire. If you have seen the original Star Wars movies or have seen the cartoon Clone Wars TV show, then you probably are all well aware of the Hutt species, the most famous member, of course, being Jabba the Hutt from Return of the Jedi, giant, gross, slimy, slug dude. So we're going to be talking about the history of his species the huts and where they came from, where they got to where they are with relation to the next major conflict, the Taiwanese War, uh, as well as kind of the context for Jabba the Hutt and some fun facts about that character as well. This is episode six, Slimy Pieces of Worm-Ridden Filth. 3PO, you tell that slimy piece of worm-ridden filth. He'll get no such pleasure from us. Right? 
The Huts are a sentient species that originated on the planet Varl. This planet is way out on the eastern edge of the galaxy, in the center of what is now known as Hut space. As was the case with the vast majority of the galaxy in the early years, the planet Varl and the Huts were conquered by the Rakata Infinite Empire and made their subjects for quite a while. When the power of the Rakata began to decline and weaken, the Huts revolted, led by one individual known as Ardustag. He was a leader who led a bunch of massive uprisings that eventually drove the Rakata off of Arl, and he got the nickname Ardustag the Absolute, and basically became the first leader of the Huts after this enslavement period. After gaining their independence, they were able to take the Rakata technology that was left behind and utilize it to start an empire of their own, the Hut Empire. It is not known whether the Huts had the ability for interstellar travel prior to the invasion by the Rakata, and so we don't know if they had a pre-existing technology or they used technology stolen to enable them to start exploring other planets, but that doesn't really matter. The Huts began their exploration and forming their empire very rapidly after the eviction of the Rakata from Varl. The Huts are an aggressive and warrior-like species with a superiority complex to match, and so upon their spread throughout the galaxy in newly found worlds, their way of interacting was through conquest, enslavement, and extermination of everything that they could find, and taking the planets for themselves in the pursuit of building this massive empire. We learn in the Star Wars movies that this practice of slavery continued in the Hut society all the way up through the Republic and the Empire, and that the Huts maintained pretty much an independence from those central governments throughout the entire course of that time. The empire that the Huts built existed primarily in the Outer Rim, way out on the outlying eastern edge of the galaxy, uh, but did extend a little bit towards the core into what is called the Mid Rim. The Huts empire expanded pretty much unchallenged until a approximately the year 25,000 before the Battle of Yavin, when they ran into the Tyanese Empire of Zim the Despot. It is this interaction between Zim's Empire and the Hutt Empire that is cause for war, as well as having an important factor to play in the later Tyanese War between the Galactic Republic and Zim's Empire. So we'll talk more about Zim and the Tyanese Empire in a later episode as we build up all the context surrounding the Tyanese War. The Hut society, at least at the very beginning when they were alone on their home world, seems to be rather mythological or religious. In fact, the planet Varl, which was a planet surrounding a binary star system orbiting two stars, Evona and Ardos, the Huts worshipped those stars as gods. They saw the stars that gave them light as gods. This mythological bent of the Huts 
can lead to some conflicting historical information about their society. A great example is the hut cataclysms. At a certain point, around 15,000 before the Battle of Yavin, the huts relocated from their homeworld of Varl, abandoning it in favor of the planet they named Nalhutta. Nalhutta is the homeworld of the huts that we're a little more familiar with if you've seen the Clone Wars TV show. It is the reason for abandoning their homeworld of Varl for this new home that is disputed. According to Hutt tradition and going along with their belief that their binary star system was a pair of gods, the story on the destruction of their planet and the reason for them leaving is that the star Evona was consumed by a black hole and destroyed, and in its anger, the complementary god Ardos, their other star, expelled its gaseous external layers, which destroyed the life on all the other planets in the star system. The planet Varl itself was not completely destroyed, but its atmosphere was vaporized. It was left as a complete wasteland, completely uninhabitable. But the huts were able to evacuate before this happened and resettle on the new planet that they named Nalhutta. The competing theory for what happened is that the huts actually destroyed the planet themselves in a massive civil war that ravaged the planet, forcing them to abandon it. However, it would be difficult to get conclusive evidence of one or the other because Varl is sacred in hut tradition as their original homeworld, and they forbid all other ships, all those other species getting anywhere close to it. They patrol the planetary system all the time to protect it as sacred ground. Another star-based mythology the Huts held on to was centered on the brightest star in the sky seen from Varl, that was the star Syax. I couldn't discover any specific myths they held about that star system, but it was important enough, and their mythology was important enough, that even in their massive expansion and domination of their region of space, they never traveled to the Syax system and even went so far as to erase it from their navigational charts to preserve their mythologies of it. And that they maintained all the way up to the time of the Empire in the current movies. Now we know where the huts came from, but what is a hut other than a small house or a place to get pizza? Physiologically, huts are... A lot like slugs in more than just their appearance. Instead of having an internal skeleton, their body is given shape by an internal semi-rigid mantle. A lot like most mollusks, like slugs and snails and squids. Additionally, their large, fat bodies behave like a giant foot, just like snails and slugs have. And they have a large, toothless mouth but inside their throat they have what's called a radula, which is basically a bunch of spiny, sharp things that shred up the food as it passes down, which is another feature that most mollusks have. I'm going to post some images and diagrams of these things on the website so you can get the visual idea of what it is we're talking about. If you don't know anything about 
slugs or snails and don't want to be troubled to do all that research yourself. Huts also have some physiological features we are familiar with from other animal species around us. They have the ability to see in the ultraviolet spectrum of light, like most birds. They also are able to seal their nostrils and take a large amount of air into their lungs so they can submerge themselves in water for long periods of time. And they reproduce asexually. They are hermaphroditic and they don't need any partners to produce offspring. They can just spawn an offspring independently. And they are like marsupials. They have a brood pouch where they nurse their offspring in the early stages of its life. Huts are one of the longest-lived sentient species in the galaxy, living over a thousand years, typically. They often will stay in the brood pouch for 50 of our years. Childhood is considered to last until about 70 years old, then young adulthood for the next 20 years, and then they're considered a full adult from the age of 90 on to about 650, which is when they hit middle age. Additionally, hut bodies grow constantly over the course of their lives, so the older a hut is, the bigger it is. At the time of his death in Return of the Jedi, Jabba the Hut was about 600 years old, so you can imagine a hut living to be over a thousand would be just much bigger, just super massive. One hut that we see that is over a thousand years old is the character Mama in the Clone Wars TV show, and I will put some pictures of her on the website as well to give you an idea of the size of a hut that lives over a thousand years. As a society on the whole, as I mentioned before, the huts were very aggressive, militaristic. They were also very egocentric with a pretty big superiority complex. It explains why they believed they should just exterminate or enslave all of the other alien populations that they encountered. Uh, they would exterminate those who they viewed to be weak or a threat and enslave those who were useful to them, but they viewed all other life forms essentially to be beneath them and that they were a superior life form. Society among the huts was very clan-centric. There are different clans and families who would often vie among each other for power. And it is possible that the major cataclysm, if it was not in fact the explosion of their star destroying the planet, but was a civil war as others have speculated, it makes sense because of this clan-centric viewpoint where two clans warring against each other uh, could easily have ravaged the whole planet. Huts were primarily motivated by uh, supporting their clan, the benefit of the clan being paramount, money, power, status, all very important, which uh, shows in their desire for material things like slaves and technology and grand palaces. It also tends to show a little bit their propensity for being crime lords. That is a big reputation they had. Of course, we know Jabba the Hutt being a big crime lord. But many huts had this reputation for leading lives of organized crime, and in fact they encouraged this sort of behavior. As another sort of facet of their egocentricity, they had a different moral code than other species. 
This is why they didn't really interact all that well with the Galactic Republic. Many of the laws that applied throughout the Republic, the Huts didn't really understand because it didn't really fit with their moral code. A lot of the things that the Republic would consider crimes, the Huts didn't. They did have a legal system. It was mostly based on business practices, however, the big crimes being defaulting on loans, cheating on gambling, and things of that nature. Essentially, the entire goal of any given hut was to amass as much wealth and power for themselves and to pass on through their clan as possible, and they didn't really care what means they went about achieving that. Right around 1500 BBY and the time of the hut cataclysm when they left their home world for one reason or another, they established a more or less centralized government for hut space called the Hut Ruling Council. Now, keep in mind that this didn't exist when we're talking about their hut's conflicts with the Taiwanese Empire and Zim the Despot, which we'll cover in some upcoming episodes. But eventually, at the time of the movies, the huts have some sort of a centralized council which rules all of the huts. This council is made up of five individuals chosen from what are called the ancient clans, or clans that can trace their lineage back to the original uh, clans living on the original homeworld of Varl. Membership on the ruling council was really based on the power, influence, and wealth of a given clan, so it was not necessarily a one-to-one -one ratio. There are more clans than five, and so they naturally are limited because there are only five seats on the council, but an incredibly powerful clan might have more than one seat on the council. And really, the sort of most wealthy and powerful member of the council was more or less the autocrat and actually had all of the control of all of the huts. Now, when it comes to naming conventions among the huts, we all refer to the various huts as Blank the Hut. We have Jabba the Hut, Gardula the Hut, etc. But obviously they did not call each other Blank the Hut. Each hut has three parts to their full name, the first being their personal name, the one in which they're known to outsiders, like Jabba, for instance. The second part of their name is their clan name, it identifies the name of the clan. All members of the clan have this second name in common. In Jabba's case, his clan name is Desilogic because of how closely guarded the huts kept their culture and customs. It's not really known what the meaning of the third name is, whether they were some sort of title or descriptive term for the person, a nickname of sorts. Uh, but there was the third name in Jabba's case. It was Ture, so his full name is not Jabba the Hutt, but Jabba Desilogic Ture. Again, because of how closely guarded the Huts kept themselves in terms of their culture, a lot of people were unaware of these naming conventions, and it seems the Huts were happy to keep it that way. It probably offered them a little bit of protection if which clan they were a part of wasn't broadcast throughout everywhere. Individuals could keep a little bit of secrecy about their personal families. 
all together, that gives us a pretty good baseline for understanding the history of the Hutt's origins, their early times, as well as their culture and how they sort of thought about the galaxy and sets the stage for their interactions with the rest of the galaxy pretty well, I think. Next, I want to give you a few little just fun behind-the-scenes facts and tidbits. George Lucas got the name Hut derived from the Arabic word for whale. He got a number of names and terms relating to the desert planet of Tatooine from Arabic as well. The idea for the character itself of being a monstrously sized, imposing crime lord Lucas got from sort of the idea of a sultan, sultan-like figures feared for size and power. He's quoted as saying, There has always been rotund evil sultans who sit on their beds while others are tortured in front of them. So that was his inspiration for the character. The original Jabba the Hutt character in Return of the Jedi is a massive puppet he was constructed out of four tons of clay and foam latex to create a giant puppet that was actually handled by three people all inside of him. So because the puppet itself is so big, you had three operators inside the body. One person operated the left arm and head a second operated the tail, and a third operated the right arm and opening and closing the mouth. It was quite a production in and of itself for them to all climb in. There was a hole underneath his body that they had to climb up into, and the fact that you had three people stuffed into this giant puppet that probably was A, cramped, and B, hot and stifling, in addition to the set being wood and the puppet itself being flammable, they always had to have firemen and EMTs on standby just in case something went wrong. All the operators had headsets to be in constant communication with the outside world, and they were pretty much stuck in there most of every day when they were shooting the scenes. And finally, the voice and sounds that Java made were not just a person talking in a deep voice, saying weird things. It was a combination of a number of sounds, humans talking, hippopotamuses, hyenas, and the slurping noises that he makes like when he's eating and stuff or sticking his tongue out were from a person using their hand to squash through a bowl of mac and cheese. <laughs> Mmm, very appetizing. The last thing I want to do on today's episode is answer a question I got from a listener via email. After listening to the first episode, it seems that Dean was a little bit confused or unclear about the spread of midichlorians throughout the galaxy. He was sort of wondering if they all started on one planet, how did they end up inside of all sorts of different species before interstellar travel existed, which is a great question. I sort of alluded to it in episode one, but there isn't a whole lot of information out there to answer this question. The best guess is that the planet they came from is referred to as the wellspring of life, and so one theory is that 
all life in the galaxy actually originated on this planet, midichlorians included, and spread throughout the galaxy from, I guess, a molecular level to evolve and grow on various planets into various different species. And so the theory is that the midichlorians started simultaneous to other life forms and spread maybe through organisms that could survive the vacuum of space or on fragments or debris cast out by asteroid collisions with the planet or things like that. It's not really understood, and again, this is just all speculation. There's no canonical sources that tell us any more than what I've shared already, so we can only sort of guess how that would happen. I hope that answers your question, and please, everyone else who's listening, feel free to Email any questions or comments you have to the email, swgalaxypodcast at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer them either just personally or if I think it's a question that maybe a lot of people have, then perhaps within an episode itself. Once again, I want to involve as many of my listeners as possible in the next episode the special star wars day episode so head to the website swgalaxypodcast.com click the audience interaction link and tell me how you typically celebrate star wars day and i will share some of them in the next episode which i am optimistic i can crank out in the next week so you'll get two quick hit episodes Thank you again, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoy making this podcast. And again, may the 4th be with you.